Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me today for this 200th episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Often I like to revisit subjects that have been covered before in order to give a greater understanding or depth. Well, back in October of last year, in episode 157, I interviewed a climatologist, Pat Michaels, asking the question if climate change was a hoax. I encourage you to listen to get a background on this topic so that today's interview with Cal Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance will have greater meaning. It's not that you can't listen to this first. I encourage you to do so. But if you want to go into areas that our discussion won't go, um, you'll have better understanding. Now, Cal Beisner, as I said, of the Cornwall Alliance, has been in the trenches working to bring light and clarity to an issue that has gone the way of political correctness, wokeness, and censorship. The question I'm going to ask him to address today is, how does environmentalism differ from stewardship? Cal, thanks for joining me. Andrea, thanks very, very much for having me on the program. It's uh, it's a privilege. Uh, how does environmentalism differ from biblical stewardship? Well, um, well, before you start, I was going to okay. say, tell us a little bit about you. Not everybody's going to okay. know the the name Cal Beisner, okay. nor are they going to know the Cornwall Alliance. So this is your opportunity to give a summary of you and your organization. Sure. Yeah, I am. Uh, what? How do I describe myself? Sometimes I, I describe myself as an intellectual mutt. I'm an interdisciplinary scholar, have been ever since my uh, pre-college days. I love studying all sorts of different subjects. Did a BA in interdisciplinary studies at the University of Southern California, an MA in economic ethics through, the, through International College, a PhD in uh, uh, Scottish history, particularly the history of political thought, the uh, political thought of the late 17th century Scottish Covenanters through the University of St. Andrews. But I've also always studied in depth in theology, biblical studies, uh, uh, economics, and so on. And frankly, I've studied the issue of climate change a whole lot more than I ever did for my PhD. And uh, about a decade ago, Dr. Roy Spencer, who is uh, one of the world's leading climate scientists, was a great friend of Pat Michaels before Pat's uh, sad death, uh, about a month ago, I guess it was. Um, Roy is on my board and he's a senior fellow of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. About a decade ago, Roy told me one day, Cal, you know more about all the arguments pro and con on global warming than any climate scientist I know. We all study our little narrow slices of the pie. You read everything. Well, you know, of course, no, I don't read everything. Nobody reads everything. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've studied pretty widely on these things. Um, starting in the early 1980s, uh, actually prompted by reading Ronald Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, I realized that I needed to learn a lot about economics if I were to 
be able to discern whether the advice Sider gave, which was basically socialistic, uh, was wise and and would promote uh, a prosperous, a free, uh, a virtuous society. And uh, so after reading a stack of texts on economics, I decided, no, uh, that Sider's book, however well-intended it was, would actually uh, cause a lot of harm if people took it seriously and tried to implement it, which many people have done. So that led me uh, first to doing my uh, master's in economic ethics. That was uh, under private tutelage by uh, the late Dr. Russell Kirk, one of the premier minds in the conservative uh, political movement in America. And uh, through that, I was asked to chair a committee on economics of what was called the Coalition on Revival back in the 1980s, a committee of about 120 people eventually uh, contributed uh, to the economics sphere of this. And through that, um, I was asked to write a book for Crossway's Turning Point Christian Worldview series uh, on economics, uh, sort of a general introduction to economics from a biblical worldview perspective. One of the chapters in that book was supposed to treat population resources in the environment. And as I worked on that, I just realized (laughs) that couldn't be treated in a chapter. And so I told the series editor, Marvin Alasky, that uh, that was the case. And he said, well, okay, just do another book simply on that, uh, which I did. So those two books were Prosperity and Poverty, The Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity, 1988, and Prospects for Growth, uh, A Biblical View of Population Resources in the Environment. Uh, And uh, uh, those two books kind of gave me a reputation as a scholar in the field. So I started getting invited to speak at colleges and schools and uh, seminars and conferences and the like. And by the end of the 1990s, um, I was just kind of looked at as one of the leading evangelical figures in those fields. And uh, in the fall of 1999, uh, after a two or three day colloquium of scholars in that field held in a retreat center in West Cornwall, Connecticut, Uh, I drafted a two-page statement of principles that eventually uh, was revised and revised, and we released it in March of 2000 with about 1,500 signatures of uh, prominent religious leaders and scientists and economists and the like, Um, and we called it the Cornwall Declaration on Environmental Stewardship. In 2005, partly in response to a movement among evangelicals on the left, uh, led by the Evangelical Environmental Network, uh, we began really trying to to put feet to the Cornwall Declaration. And we we produced a a series of, of lectures and a series of papers, Uh, One particular paper, quite important at the time, we published in 2006, called A Call to Truth, Prudence, and Protection of the Poor, uh, addressed the whole climate change issue because the Evangelical Environmental Network and Evangelicals for Social Action uh, had been saying, hey, if you're an evangelical and you care about the poor, you must want to fight global warming. And we pointed out that trying to fight global warming by the means that they were advising would actually be far more harmful to the poor than anything that climate change would do. Uh, So 
in the 17 years since then, uh, this has grown from my part-time almost sort of hobby <laughs> to my full-time work. Uh, I was uh, associate professor of uh, interdisciplinary studies at Covenant College from 92 to 2000 and an associate professor of uh, historical theology and social ethics at Knox Theological Seminary from uh, 2000 to 2008. Uh, and then I planted a church for the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 2007. And by 2010, uh, Cornwall Alliance became my full-time work and has been since. All right. So that's an impressive history. And I think what it speaks to is so many times when someone's going to speak on a subject, we think, well, what is your degree in? And in <laughs> fact, your work, your resources that you've gathered and put together and the effect you've had is because you were led to reconcile the the Bible, the biblical worldview in how to live yes. on earth. And right. I think it's so important because it's so easy to caricature Christians as, you know, people who don't care about the environment. Well, yeah, I think and- it's because they haven't been taught in many cases what their responsibility is. Yeah, and Andrea, I, I should also say that uh, my work is uh, basically the work of integrating the insights of great scholars in all of these different fields. Uh, so the Cornwall Alliance uh, for the Stewardship of Creation is, is a network of just under 70 different scholars. About a third of them are natural scientists, including some of the world's top climate scientists. About a third are economists and policy wonks, most of them uh, focused on either developmental economics, you know, what, what kind of an economy actually uh, allows people, uh, whole societies to rise and stay out of poverty uh, into prosperity, or environmental economics. And then about a third are theologians, philosophers, uh, ministry leaders, and the like. And so we try to integrate all of those different spheres or disciplines of of study so as to have a a full-orbed way of addressing these things. And our aim is to educate the public and policymakers on biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the gospel of Christ together with the biblical worldview, theology, and ethics that come alongside the gospel. These three things are not separate subjects. They all need to be integrated because if the Bible is what it claims to be, it is the super book. If you're going to understand economics, you have to start with the scripture. If you're going to understand the environment. So how about isolating the different assumptions? Because you said you've been credited with knowing both sides of the arguments better than anybody. So what are the differing assumptions between a humanistic view of the environment and a biblical view. Yeah, you know, one could approach this in a number of different ways. Let me start by saying most of the environmental movement, and not all, there are there are solid Christians who would call themselves environmentalists and their their worldview is fine, uh, their their biblical ethics are fine. Uh, I might disagree with them on some scientific issues and whatnot, but you know, that's that's fine. Uh, but the vast majority of the environmental movement is is rooted in anti-biblical worldviews, either 
secular humanist worldview. The universe is all that is and ever was. Uh, Carl Sagan sort of thinking the cosmos is all that ever was and ever and is and ever will be. Or a, uh, a pantheistic or panentheistic or animistic worldview. Uh, in pantheism, God is the universe. Everything is God. Uh, in panentheism, God is to the universe as the soul is to the body. And in uh, animism, there are lots of you know God's spirits uh, that inhabit trees and rocks and rivers and mountains and the like. Uh, all three of those, as well as uh, the secular materialist worldview, uh, reject the biblical creator-creature distinction. Uh, because if there is no God, then of course there's no distinction between God and the universe uh, uh, because there's no God. If God is the universe or God inhabits it as the soul does the body and so on, again, there's no creator-creature distinction. And Romans 1, of course, warns us of the folly that comes from denying the distinction between the creator and the creature. Uh, Either of those worldviews winds up leading people to worship the creature instead of the creator. In the biblical worldview, of course, we believe that the triune God, uh, eternal, uh, infinite, eternal, and and, uh, uh, unchangeable in his wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth, created this universe out of nothing. And he did so with wisdom. He did so with absolute power. And uh, uh, he rules it all. And our job is to learn to understand his universe in the way that he created it so that we can live in it and use it properly in ways that are uh, creative and productive. Most of the environmental movement, to go back to the distinctions, uh, sees human beings basically as consumers and polluters and thinks that uh, nature, the natural world, is delicate and nurturing. And if we would just minimize our impact on it, everything would be peachy keen, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so instead, the biblical worldview tells us that we are created in God's image to be creative, productive, uh, as he is, and that we are given a mandate in Genesis 128 to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over everything in it. Um, that entails that the earth is not best untouched by human hands, that our proper aim is not to minimize our income, our, our, our impact on the natural world, but to optimize it. As I look at Genesis 1, when God tells Adam and Eve to subdue and rule the earth, we need to understand that in terms of uh, our being the image of God so that our subduing and ruling should reflect his own uh, activity. Well, what do we learn from the earlier verses? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, so he got everything out of nothing. The better we get at making more and more out of less and less, the better we reflect God that way. Uh, originally, uh, the earth was without form and void and darkness covered the face of the deep. 
Uh, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God brings light out of darkness. He brings order out of chaos. He separates the seas from the dry land and so on. And then he brings on uh, life, uh, various kinds of life, and he tells each kind of life to be fruitful and multiply and fill its niche in the earth. So our stewardship, our dominion over the earth, and I, I think we should not uh, by any means, abandon that work, uh, that word dominion, despite the fact that so many people try to demonize it. Right. Uh, it's a biblical word and we should defend it. Our dominion over the earth should reflect God's own dominion. And at the Cornwall Alliance, we kind of summarize that by saying this godly dominion means men and women created in God's image, working lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. So that would be sort of the beginning of a distinction between most environmentalism and uh, biblical Christian understanding of, of earth stewardship. As a matter of fact, what you just said was your mission could very well be identified with the second great commandment to love others the way you would want to be loved, treat others exactly. rightfully or righteously. So it seems to me that the difference between the current environmental movement and I will call the stewardship movement that you're part of is that one is pagan and one is biblical. And instead of looking at the triune God as the head, we now have um, calls to deal with mother nature and Gaia, the mo uh, mother earth, as you put it, this is worshiping the creation, but how do they get away with sounding so noble? <laughs> well, of course, they express everything in terms of uh, a care for nature itself and then care for people, particularly the poor. And, you know, <laughs> claiming to be working on behalf of the poor, of course, is something that pretty much every political party does, every political movement does. It's, it's kind of like for, it's for the children, right? And uh, so one needs to carefully test the reality, not just of the intent, but of the actual consequences of policies pursued. So, for example, I mean, to, to move away from the environmental issue for a moment, you know, people will say, okay, so we want to have a welfare state that ensures that everybody has a basic income um, because we care. We care about the poor. We care about children. We want to make sure that nobody goes, goes uh, hungry and so on. And that sounds good at first until you recognize that when you make sure that everybody has adequate food, clothing, shelter, and then, okay, medical care, and maybe cell phones and things like that. But you know, let's just stay at food, clothing, and shelter. When you make sure everybody has that, without conditioning that in any way on their own behavior, you interfere with the incentive mechanisms that God has woven into human nature and into the nature of society, so that people then become very happy to sit back and enjoy the benefits without contributing to their production. And frankly, you wind up contradiction, contradicting Paul's instruction in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, 
if a man will not work, not, not if he can't, okay, he's, he's quadriplegic and, and mentally handicapped, and simply cannot do anything to produce. But if a man will not work, neither allow him to eat, neither let him eat. Um, why is that? Well, you know, Andrea, we feed our pets, our dogs, our cats, our birds, our fish, right? Mm-hmm. We feed our pets without asking them to work for the food that we give to them. That's because our pets are not human beings. They're not made in the image of God. And so we don't treat them as creative and productive as God is and as human beings are. When we treat humans the way the welfare does, we put them at the level of pets. We treat them as if they were pets instead of as if they were humans. That is dehumanizing. It is disrespectful. It is dishonoring of the image of God in them. So now we can come, for example, to an environmental issue. Take, for example, back in the uh, 2000s, uh, the, the aughts, right? Um, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency was seeking to place very, very strict regulations on the emission of mercury from coal-fired power plants on the grounds that mercury is a toxic chemical and what's emitted from the coal-fired power plants could, through precipitation, wind up in rivers and then in fish that people would eat and therefore it would get into the people and it would be harmful to their health. Now, all of that is theoretically entirely plausible, uh, but in fact, what we learned from very, very careful scientific studies of all of that was that the amount of mercury that anybody could consume by eating fish from America's rivers was so infinitesimally small that it was of no significant medical risk. Now, that was uh, a matter that was debated for a period of well over a decade. And eventually the EPA issued a rule, uh, the mercury and air toxins uh, standard, which eventually the Supreme Court struck down because it did not have proper uh, statutory basis and because its estimate of public risk was wrong factually. Now, why was that such a problem? Well, it was such a problem because coal-fired power plants are one of the least expensive ways of providing abundant, affordable, reliable electricity for people. Now think about all the things that electricity does for us, mm-hmm. light, heat, uh, um, the machinery in factories, uh, the machinery in hospitals, all of those things that we get from electricity. When you make that more expensive, you harm people because, frankly, access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy, not just in the form of electricity, but also in the form of, of liquid fuels and solid fuels, is absolutely indispensable to lifting and keeping any whole society out of poverty. And unfortunately, this mercury rule back in the uh, aughts uh, conflicted with ensuring the provision of abundant, affordable, reliable energy. 
and would have been harmful to people and indeed was harmful to people. And uh, quite a few power plants were actually shut down before the Supreme Court struck the rule down. Uh, so it did its damage before it was uh, uh, abolished. Uh, we see the same thing happening with issues about climate change. Right. It would be easy to say, well, the people who push these policies really care about people. But if they really cared about people, you think that they would consider the consequences of their actions. And so you just pointed out that a lot of the power plants closed, probably permanently, making it harder for people to get energy or cost more. And of course, who that hurts the most are not executives or big tech people. It usually hurts the working class person. So how have we bought into this and not asked the question, what is this going to do for the very people that you say you want to help? Yeah. um, You know, first to go back sort of the beginning of what you just said to issues about uh, motivation, you know, intention. Um, I I think all sorts of different things uh, motivate different people to be involved in this, uh, to, to hold various different positions on it. And some of those motivations are, I think, noble and fine, and some are not so. Uh, and uh, it's not always just a question of saying, follow the money, because sometimes uh, you, know, you can follow the money and you wind up uh, with somebody who's doing great, great good and making good income from it. And so that's not a bad thing. How is it that so many people wind up being persuaded to to uh, to embrace policies that, in fact, do a lot of harm, though they're presented as if they're to do a lot of good. Well, part of it is that I think too many people have lost sight of the fact that life is full of trade-offs uh, and that, that uh, to do one thing always means we can't do another thing. You know, I, I sometimes will put it to people this way, uh, especially environmentalists who are always demanding that we 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 reduce emissions of whatever pollutant farther and farther and farther and farther down i say to them um uh excuse me but you're not uh you're not uh using antiseptic uh cleanser on your bathroom at the moment are you and huh what do you mean and i said well uh, the reason you're not of course is that uh you think that your bathroom is clean enough <laughs> and if you didn't think so, you'd be there cleaning it. But you think that the present use of your time is uh, is is more profitable. And I don't just mean in terms of money income to them, but to the world. You th- you value this present use of your time more than you would value going and spending another hour or six hours cleaning your bathroom. Well, it's the same thing about uh, carbon dioxide emissions or mercury emissions or SO2 or lead emissions or anything else. The question is, how clean is clean enough? And the answer to that question is, as clean as you can make it without the cost of making it cleaner exceeding the benefits of making it cleaner, right? So, the first problem is the failure of so many people to think in terms of trade-offs and to measure benefits versus costs against each other. Another problem is, is frankly, the 
one-sided look at things, uh, the propensity to look only at the costs or only at the benefits of any given policy option. That's been a severe problem related to climate change. For instance, uh, folks will say climate change is an existential threat and therefore, no matter how much it costs, we need to reduce it. We need to, to limit it. Now, these folks have clearly not seriously read the massive uh, periodic assessment reports that come out from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Because if you do read those reports, you find that that organization, which most climate alarmists say, you know, issues the Bible on climate change, right? The IPCC clearly says in its assessment reports that no matter what we do about climate change, whether we try desperately to reduce it or, or we just do nothing and let it happen, future generations of human beings are going to be much better off economically, uh, materially, than the present generation. And indeed, the, <laughs> the, the, the people do the best by the end of this century, for example, in the scenarios where we just let business go as usual, where we do nothing to try to reduce climate change. Why is that? It's because the benefits of the massive amounts of affordable, reliable, instant on demand, 24, seven, 365 energy that we get from fossil fuels. The benefits of that far outweigh any risks from anything related to climate. And that's because energy goes into the production of everything that we produce. You know, back in your middle school years, you probably were taught at some point Energy is defined by physicists as the capacity to do work. Yes. Well, work is what gives us food, clothing, shelter, and everything else that we get to enjoy, right? So the more energy you have, the more work you can do, the more work you can do, the, the more of all of those different things you can have, and therefore the less expensive they are and the more affordable for everyone, particularly the world's poor. Now, Fighting climate change requires that we reduce our use of fossil fuels, and many people are demanding that we uh, eventually completely eliminate the use of those. But those fossil fuels currently provide right about 85% of all the energy that we use in this world. And they provide the energy that enables us to protect ourselves from anything related to climate. So, for example, since 1900, the mortality rate from extreme weather events, which some people claim will become more frequent and more extreme because of uh, man-made global warming from carbon dioxide released from burning fossil fuels, the mortality rate from extreme weather events has fallen by over 98%. And that's right during the time that global average surface temperature has risen by oh, something on the order of eight tenths to one degree Celsius. Well, that means that 
our ability to protect ourselves from anything related to climate is closely uh, correlated by, with and indeed caused in part by our access to that huge energy available from fossil fuels. And the problem is that aside from nuclear and in some locations where there are big enough rivers and the, the uh, geology is appropriate for making big enough dams to uh, provide hydropower, Aside from fossil fuels, nuclear, and hydropower, the only other significant energy sources that we can that we have are wind and solar, and those are extremely diffuse, highly inefficient, much more expensive. After you include not just the direct costs, but also the indirect costs of tax subsidies and tax incentives, uh, uh, government subsidies and tax incentives, which run uh, hundreds of times as much per kilowatt hour of, of electricity generated as what little subsidies go to any fossil fuels. When you count all those costs, wind and solar are much more expensive and far less reliable because they're intermittent. The sun's not always shining. The wind's not always blowing. And consequently, they, they make for a very unstable electric grid and you get disasters like what happened in Texas in uh, uh, February of uh, 2021 uh, with the, uh, the freeze there where hundreds of people died because the electric grid failed because wind and solar failed. And, uh, when, and, and, and some of that failure actually re resulted in the failure of the pumping stations for natural gas. Uh, natural gas would have done just fine had it not been that those stations were were turned off uh, by the uh, the grid operators uh, as they saw total uh, input to the grid falling. So all of these things are, you know, as you can see, they can quickly get pretty complicated. But what happens is that people don't understand the complexity of these systems, and they don't uh, they don't properly understand the trade offs involved. They don't recognize that the benefits we gain from fossil fuels far outweigh the risks from any effect on climate. Even if you are uh, in the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, they make that very clear. But mainstream media and environmental activists and most politicians uh, either simply don't know what's in those reports, they're massive and hard to read, or they ignore that part of the reports. It would be easy to blame the bad guys, but it seems to me if we have such a pervasive amount of ignorance among the rank and file people that it's almost a willful ignorance. We are busy amusing ourselves so that it's all going to be okay because the premise is science will save us. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, what that means is that uh, a lot of people, including listeners to your program, and they probably are actually far above average on this, <laughs> but a lot of people really need to uh, you know, buck up and, and start learning, start studying. I mean, this is why the Cornwall Alliance uh, maintains a website with hundreds of articles on it and, and major papers, cornwallalliance.org. It's why we maintain a Facebook page where we frequently publish new information, 
uh, again, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And we have a YouTube channel as well, uh, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, where we have, uh, oh, I think uh, about 60 or so videos on uh, these different issues. We also publish uh, a couple of times a week an e-newsletter that people can subscribe to at cornwallalliance.org. And we have a, a, a podcast called Created to Reign, it's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and various other platforms. Um, so people can can learn uh, from our work about these issues. It's, it's important that people learn these things because, as Scripture says, uh, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And, uh, you know, Andrea, if there's been anything that has been sort of a, a life verse for me, uh, it would have been First uh, Thessalonians 5.21, where Paul says, test all things, hold fast what is good. We Christians need to be the most skeptical people in the world. We need to be always testing, always wanting to find the, uh, the evidence, the logic of the, uh, the argument that supports or, or that uh, might dismantle a given idea or policy. Uh, that's where we need to go. And it's hard work. Um, and it's not exactly what's made easiest by our tech culture that calls us to read tweets and Facebook posts instead of serious studies. Exactly. So we have Earth Day. We have people who look and say we are sinning against the earth. Well, you can't sin against the earth. You only sin against God. And I would say failing to steward properly, failing to take all things into consideration and failing to learn is sinful. And I think we can basically say if we're wondering why so many things appear to go wrong, the first place we need to look in the mirror and in our own house. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, what this means is that, uh, each of us has the responsibility to learn as much as we can about the areas into which God calls us. And frankly, God doesn't call everybody into the kind of thing that I do with Cornwall Alliance. Uh, you know, there are, there are many different gifts, and the one spirit distributes them to all the members of Christ's church. And uh, the eye can't say to the foot, you're not a part of the body because you're not an eye. But those who do have an interest in this environmental stewardship or what I call biblical earth stewardship, uh, we're glad to, to help them learn to think these things through. Uh, we always, every month, we offer an educational uh, resource absolutely free as our say, way of saying thank you when people make a 100% uh, tax-deductible donation of literally any size and request it. Uh, people, uh, people who subscribe to our e-newsletter will find out about each of those resources uh, during each given month. This month, August, uh, our resource is, is uh, Alex Epstein's marvelous book, Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. Uh, it's a 468-page hardback book that retails at 30 bucks, but we will give a free copy to anybody who makes a donation of literally any size and requests it. They can do that 
by going to cornwallalliance.org. Scroll down and click on the donate button. And as you fill out the donation form, look for the uh, comments field. And in that, just write uh, fossil future, or you could write promo code 22-08. That's for the month of August of the year 2022. Uh, But fossil future will do it. And uh, we think this is a tremendous book to help people understand the role of fossil fuels in in bettering the material uh, condition of mankind. So you and I were talking before we started recording about books. Um, if my listeners could see you, you're standing or you're sitting in front of a bookcase, which you said is only a fraction of the books you have. And there's a tendency nowadays to say, I don't have time to read. Yet, as you pointed out, we have time to check social media, amuse ourselves to death with things that are very inconsequential. And so I would say for those who are looking at, well, what do I want for my children? What emphasis should I steer them towards? I think what you do and the areas that you're putting attention on are very important for our future and an optimistic future. And in terms of that, I'd like you to explain, and I love this when I read it, and I want to hear you talk about it, how God's judgment in the flood, which was clearly his judgment, mm-hmm. basically allowed us to have life from death in the sense of all the fossil fuels we have come from where Yes. And how how should we look at that instead of looking at fossil fuels as an enemy or as a punishment that yeah. we look at it as a grace? Yeah, I refer to this as uh, the, the carbon cycle. Um, you know, some people just see fossil fuels as as dirty, nasty things and, and uh, you know, causing all pr- kinds of problems. We've already discussed that. They're forgetting to look at both the benefits uh, versus the costs and the benefits far outweigh the costs. But what I point out to people is is this. Where is it that fossil fuels come from? Well, they come from deep inside the earth. Uh, how did they get there? Well, according to biblical geology, they got there in the flood. They were buried by massive amounts of sediment, and through uh, time and pressure and heat, uh, they were converted into oil or coal, natural gas. And uh, this is how these hydrocarbons were stored up. All of these things had had become immense deposits of energy by absorbing energy from sunlight through the growth of plants and then the eating of plants by the animals. So they get buried and uh, in that burial process and, and their, their time uh, under pressure and heat, they transform into these fossil fuels. Then we dig them up uh, or we pump them out and we refine them and we burn them and from that burning, we get energy that uh, promotes uh, promotes uh, life uh, through food and clothing and shelter and everything else, right? And uh, then we also get another thing from them when we, when we burn them. We get carbon dioxide. And that carbon dioxide uh, enhances the growth of all plants. In fact, no plants could live without it because it is essential to photosynthesis. And so the more CO2 is in the atmosphere, the more plants grow. Uh, we already have satellite uh, imagery that shows us very clearly that the 
leaf area of the world has grown very significantly over the very period during which carbon dioxide has increased. And we understand this actually quite well. Uh, indeed, one study published back in 2013 looked, uh, it was a, a meta study, uh, analyzing the results of several hundred different uh, studies published in refereed journals on the impact of added CO2 on plant growth. And this study concluded that the CO2 that we had added to the atmosphere from 1960 to 2012 had probably uh, resulted in about $3.2 trillion extra uh, agricultural uh, production, agricultural uh, uh, crop yields. And if you projected off to the year 2050 in terms of uh, how much more CO2 was anticipated to be added to the atmosphere, we would uh, we would project an added $9.8 trillion extra in crop yields around the world. That means more food for everything that eats plants and that eats something that does eat plants. And among human beings, the ones who benefit the most from that are the poor. So I then step back and I, I put my theologian's hat on for a minute and I say to myself, okay, so were those animals and plants that died in the flood, were they guilty of any sin? Had they offended God somehow? And the answer is no, they, they weren't. It was humans who had sinned, not they. So we have some innocent creatures, animals and plants, who die because of somebody else's sin, man's, and they're buried, and then they're raised up out of the ground, and they give physical life. And isn't that familiar somehow? I mean, haven't we heard that story somewhere before? Yes. About Jesus, who, innocent, died because of our sin, was buried and rose from the dead to give life to all who trust in him. Uh, you know, this is, this is a, a little poetic uh, license that I'm taking here, but the apostle Paul even says that, uh, that Jesus was raised a life giving spirit. This is in first Corinthians 15. He was raised a life, life giving spirit. Uh, the word uh, there for spirit is pneuma. Um, and that's where we get our word pneumatic, uh, the the gas carbon dioxide is a pneuma. Uh, so there just seems to me to be this beautiful sort of uh, almost allegorical uh, uh, relationship between what we understand about the origin of fossil fuels and the benefits that we receive from them and the gospel of Christ having died for our sins, according to the scriptures, having been buried and having risen uh, on the third day, according to the scriptures, so that whoever believes in him has everlasting life. So it makes you wonder, um, based on that view, and I really liked it, it made me smile when I first heard it, and I had to go back and I read it in one of your um, pieces of literature, and then I heard it again when you had lectured on it, that we don't need to be afraid of our future. In other words, there aren't too many people, there aren't a scarcity of resources, what we have is a statist system that wants to dominate everyone and actually prevents man yes. from 
taking dominion. In other words, having an idea on, okay, so these emissions might be somewhat harmful, but the benefits are better. Hey, maybe we could come up with something that made them less harmful. In other words, it takes into consideration that we're made in God's image and we can figure these things out. Uh, precisely. And, you know, what you've just uh, sort of hinted at there is what environmental economists call the environmental transition. When a society transitions from hunter-gatherer to early agricultural practices, uh, it increases its food supply. At the same time, it has a tendency to uh, to dirty the streams around where they keep their, their uh, herds and flocks. So that's a pollution problem. But the fact that they're able to raise more food this way far outweighs the risks from that little bit of additional pollution. When it transitions from uh, from primarily an agricultural economy to an early industrial economy, it increases the emission of a wide variety of other uh, air and water and solid uh, waste pollutions and uh, those have negative effects, but the added benefits, uh, the added production of food, clothing, shelter, and everything else that uh, benefits human beings materially, those added benefits clearly outweigh the risks from the pollution. How do we know that? Because at the very same time that the pollution is increasing, human life expectancy and human health are also increasing. Uh, And the bottom line measure of the quality of any environment is human health and longevity. The longer people are living, the healthier they are, the better their environment. Because, you know, we need to remember environment, a word that comes from a French word meaning surroundings, includes not just the natural world untouched by human hands, but everything that surrounds us, including the human world, including the books that you're looking at behind me as you talk with me, including our cars and our hospitals and everything else, those are all part of our environment. As those improve in their service to us, our environment is improving. Now, what happens then is that as a society transitions from early industrialization to much more advanced industrialization, it tends to use cleaner and cleaner processes, technologies for the production of all the different things that it produces. And this comes about because of new technological discoveries. It comes about because uh, as the people get wealthier, they're able to prioritize uh, cleanliness more than they previously did. And so then the pollution emissions that went up with early industrialization peak and then begin to fall. And when that society reaches a, a high technology level and uh, a level where it's it's uh, at least as much information and technology oriented as industry oriented, the pollution emissions and the pollution concentrations in the ambient world uh, fall clear back below what they were in the purely agricultural economy. So. This is this is how human beings, using our God-given intelligence, can make the world a much, much better place. And by the way, not only for us, but also for other living things. Uh, when we introduced automobiles, for instance, uh, we essentially eliminated the use of horses uh, for transportation. Well, that meant that we could 
return millions of acres of land that had been used to do nothing but grow hay for horses, which, by the way, had their own sort of pollution and (laughs) piled high and deep in city streets. Uh, But we were able to return millions of acres from cultivation of hay for horses to forestation. And so today, the United States has as many acres in forest, if not more, uh, than we had in forest in the early 19th century. So this is how we can uh, make our world more and more conducive to human thriving. But, Andrea, it, it, uh, there are some limits on this. It requires, for example, a political economic order of responsible freedom. Um, dictatorial governments, central planning, those sorts of things have absolutely horrific records on environmental stewardship. Uh, And I wrote about that in a small book of mine called uh, Is Capitalism Bad for the Environment? And I compare capitalist and socialist or communist countries' records on these things. Uh, you, you, You don't just automatically have a cleaner environment because you have technological advance. You need particular sort of political and economic order. And that is an order characterized by private property rights, entrepreneurship, limited government, free trade, and the rule of law, basically free market economies. Those go through the environmental transition much earlier and much better than do others. And some of those others actually reverse the environmental transition. So freedom, responsible freedom, freedom within the bounds of God's moral law. That is essential to good environmental stewardship, just as it is essential to good economic development. And that, I think, is a good way to conclude our conversation because you've put it into the realm of presuppositions. What do you suppose is the reason we're here? What's the reason that God created everything, including us? We need to get a God's eye view of this as opposed to a man's eye view and to make sure that what we're not doing is trying to remake God in our image and recognize that we're made in his. Amen to that. All right. Give your contact information again so that people who weren't writing it down before can write it down now. Right. Cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org. Thank you, Cal. And listeners, if you have any uh, questions or comments about this or any other topic we've covered, you know you can reach me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Cal. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.